you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the gathering, uh, my name is Cole and I'm one of the pastors here and it is a great privilege to be able to share the truth from God's Word this morning as we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. Um, as, as we do that, uh, last week Raph kind of gave us some background information on the Gospel of Mark to set things up, uh, but I, I want to briefly address the style that Mark is written in. Um, and, and so the Gospel of Mark is action-packed. Events that the other gospel accounts, those being Matthew, Luke, and John, the, the events that they would spend many words on, Mark will handle in just a few sentences. Um, and there are very few lengthy segments of Jesus' teaching in the gospel of Mark. Instead, this gospel is driven primarily by the things Jesus does, not the things that he teaches or says, and in turn... It's driven by the way others respond in action to the things Jesus does. So the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Mark is not a set of ideas or a list of beliefs. It is an imminent reality manifested in a human person, and it demands real and timely response from those who encounter it. And because of the literary style of Mark, the Gospel of Mark is... It's often misunderstood as simplistic. And, and it's true that you probably will not develop the most robust systematic theology by spending your time in the Gospel of Mark. But you will be called by God through his word, namely through his word in flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You'll be called to take action as you read the Gospel of Mark. You will be changed as you encounter this person of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, and you will be given the keys to a life of purpose and meaning that God has for you. And so with that understood, let's pray and then let's jump into the text for this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in your word, you communicate to us in various ways. You show us the richness of your complexity and your depth, your eternity, but you also show us who you are and what you have done and how we are to respond to that. And so I pray this morning as we look at, at what is seemingly a, a brief recollection of events, that you would use your spirit to impress upon us a call to a life of action in your kingdom. That you would show us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, such that we would believe and find hope and life in him. And I pray that you would do that through your word and through my fallible tongue to proclaim your excellence. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So our, our text for this morning is short. It's less than 130 words and a lot happens in that time. We're picking up in verse 9 of the first chapter of Mark, and this is after the opening portion of the gospel, which we read last week. And in that portion from last week, 
we are given a picture of the person called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is preparing the people of Israel for the arrival of the Jewish Messiah. And he's doing so by calling people to repent and be baptized and to be forgiven of their sins. And so John is depicted as the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the last guy who is calling the people of Israel to repent and turn toward God so that they can be ready for the day of the Lord when God arrives on the scene. But here in today's text, Jesus immediately, to use Mark's favorite word in the gospel, immediately becomes the focal point of the text. John fades to the background and Jesus is put on display beginning in verse 9. And so let's read that passage that Claire read for us again. Mark 1 verses 9 through 15 say this. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was, with, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So, so as I mentioned, a lot happens here and things are moving very quickly and this is very typical of the way that Mark writes. In six verses, Jesus goes from Galilee in the north to the Jordan River in central Israel to the southern wilderness of Judea and back to Galilee in the north. In six verses, he does that. In six verses, we see Jesus going from being baptized by John to being the anointed one of God who is calling people into his kingdom. And in between those two things, he spends 40 days in the wilderness fasting and being tempted by Satan and being ministered to by angels. Mark spends six verses on this. Matthew records this same sequence of events in his gospel, and he takes like 22 verses, and all of them are longer than Mark's verses. So he spends about four times as many words talking about the same thing. But that is not because Matthew was more thorough. It's because Mark is trying to tell us something about Christ, his kingdom, and what it means to follow him. And to understand this, I think we should go back to the first verse of the Gospel of Mark. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is how Mark begins this book, and he does so by getting straight to the point. He's telling us he aims to write the good news or the gospel or the royal announcement about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, he tells us, is the Son of God. And so Mark doesn't want this to be a secret to his readers. He doesn't want that Jesus is the Son of God or that there is good news about Jesus to be a secret, which is interesting because all throughout the Gospel of Mark, when people realize this about Jesus, Jesus will tell them to keep it a secret until the proper time comes. But Mark is telling us the proper time has come at the time that I am writing, and I'm not keeping this a secret. He wants us to know from the outset 
immediately, if you will, that this book is the royal announcement of the victory of the king of all creation named Jesus Christ, who is God's son. And he, he follows that first sentence by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And he says this, he says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so in this, Mark is summing up the ministry of John the Baptist, whose role was to prepare the way for Jesus, to make straight the paths for Jesus to arrive on the scene. But he's also telling us something about his gospel, which is that he is going to quickly prepare the way of the Lord and to make straight the paths of the Lord by getting to the point straight away. And so now let's look at our text for today. Let's look at the three things that happened in these short six verses. The first thing is that Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan River. The passage says that, that when this happens, that the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove and God's voice proclaims from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Mark already told us that this is the Son of God and now God is telling us that this is the Son of God. This passage presents Jesus to us as a new Adam of a new creation, coming out of the waters to be blessed by God and anointed for a work of fruitful labor. It presents Jesus also as a prophet of God being anointed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim God's truth. There's a, a, the Spirit resembles a dove, which is to remind us of God's covenant promises that he's made to his people, especially the promise that he made to Noah, which is that he would never destroy the world again through a flood. And so as Jesus is emerging from the waters, from the flood, God has, he, it is showing that God has come to a sinful people, but this time he has come through water to make peace instead of destruction. This is all happening in just a couple of verses. And then what happens? It says the Holy Spirit immediately drives Jesus out into the wilderness. The beloved and pleasing Son of God, anointed by the Spirit, is sent into the wilderness. This language shows us that Jesus' life and ministry is a humble one. His life is one where he allows God's Spirit to lead him even into difficult things like 40 days without food or water alone in the desert to be tempted by Satan. And this is the first part of Jesus' life and ministry that he had been preparing for, to be miserable and alone and hungry and tempted by Satan. We read in the other Gospels about this account in more detail, and what we see is that Jesus is supremely faithful in this time of temptation, that every time Satan tempts him, that Jesus responds with faithfulness and obedience and humility and submission to God and his word. He was obedient when faced with extreme temptation in dire circumstances, but Mark spares us all those details, and yet he gives us only two details about this account. One of them is absent from all the other gospels. It says, and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. This is fascinating to me. The wild animals are, is, is the unique thing from Mark that we don't see in, in Matthew or Luke or John. 
But, but they show us the danger of his physical setting, right? That being alone in the desert, surrounded by wild animals, is surely a life-threatening sort of experience. But, but it's also accomplishing another point that Mark is trying to make through this temptation account, and it's that Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. That's kind of the whole point of, of the temptation narrative in Mark. He is in the wilderness like Adam and Eve were after being cast out of the garden. So he went from the river of life at the Jordan to a wilderness exile. But the wilderness also reminds us of the Exodus narrative, where God's people wandered in the desert for 40 years, and here Jesus is doing so for 40 days. Yet unlike the Israelites, in those accounts, Jesus remains faithful. He doesn't grumble He doesn't fear. He willingly receives the ministry of God's faithfulness to him through the angels who are ministering to him. Whereas the Israelites were were sent a prophet in Moses, the covenant of God in the law, and God led them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke, and they grumbled and were fearful and sinful. Like Daniel, Jesus is cast to the lions as the wild animals represent the the events of the life of Daniel, but they also represent foreign enemies, which covers the entire history of God's people being surrounded by foreign enemies like the Chaldeans and the Babylonians and the Egyptians who time and time again surrounded God's people, put them in exile, sent them into wilderness places, and plundered them. But Jesus returns from his wilderness exile unharmed, victorious, like Adam and Eve and Cain and then later David and the kingdom of David, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And in all of this, he is faithful, showing us that Jesus is the true son of God for whom we've all been waiting. A better son than Adam, a better son than David. Jesus is the true Israel of God, the true kingdom and people of God manifested in the flesh. And the angels are ministering to him, which shows us God's deep love for his son. Mark is communicating the love of God by showing that God sent his angels to minister to us, that God has a desire to meet all of the needs of his people in the midst of hardship and temptation and hunger and suffering. This reminds us of the people of Israel because time after time, God sent messengers to his people through the prophets. And in the Greek, the word that is translated as angel is also the word that gets translated for messenger. And so Mark is using that to show us that the the angels surely are the heavenly host, but they also represent the prophets that God sent to his people time and time again to proclaim the truth about God, to call God's people to repentance and faithfulness and humility. And Jesus receives the ministry of the angels humbly. He allows God to care for him. While Israel rejected the prophets over and over again, killing them, sending them to exile, imprisoning them, and this leads us to the next event in our passage, which begins in verse 14 with these words, now after John was arrested. So while Jesus is being sustained through the ministry of God's messengers in the wilderness, the messenger of God to Israel in John the Baptist is imprisoned to eventually be beheaded. This is irony that Mark is using, and he's using it on purpose because he's trying to call the reader to see 
this juxtaposition between the people of Israel rejecting God's messages and Jesus willingly receiving the ministry of the messengers of God. And he's asking us, as you continue reading this book, will you receive the truth about God humbly and faithfully? Will you allow God's message to reach you, or will you cast it aside? Which gets us to the last of these events. Jesus arrives on the scene back in Galilee, his homeland. He's anointed by the Spirit of God. He's faithfully endured temptation in the wilderness, and he is ready to begin his public ministry, and he does it by saying this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Again, this is quick and action-oriented language. The time is fulfilled, which means that the day of the Lord that the people of Israel have been waiting for for hundreds, if not thousands of years, has finally come. God has come for his people. His justice, his peace, and his presence are all rapidly approaching. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. This is language of physical nearness. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God has arrived physically in his presence to his listeners. In in other words, Jesus is saying that he is the embodiment of God's kingdom, and so wherever he is, God's kingdom is. And so wherever he is, the qualities that make up God's kingdom exist. God's peace, his holiness, his righteousness, his forgiveness, his mercy, his everlasting love, and his justice are present in the purpose, uh, person of Jesus. Jesus is saying that in him is the kingdom of God because he is the king. And then, immediately, he gives a call to action. Repent and believe the gospel. John, previously, was preaching a message of repentance and faith, calling people to have their sins forgiven and to be baptized. John is now in jail, and he will be killed. Jesus shows up knowing this, preaching repentance and faith. Jesus knows that he too will preach this message of repentance and faith and that he too will be arrested and killed for doing so. But the call for the reader is this. We've learned that Jesus is the Son of God. We've learned that where he is, the kingdom of God has arrived. And so we are called to repent and believe the gospel which means that we have to know what it means to repent and to believe the gospel. Repentance is a word that you probably have heard a lot if you've been around a a religious setting, but it means a turning away from sin or a turning away from anything really that might keep you from God, that might keep you from being obedient to God. So whether this is turning away from unholy actions, unhelpful thoughts, unfaithful priorities, untrue hopes or beliefs. All of this is, is things that are things that we are called to repent of. Repentance is a call to humbly admit that you are weak and needy and unholy on your own and that you need God's help. Repentance is a, a humble admission that you are 
unholy on your own and that you need God's help. But it's also a call to a lifestyle of constant examination and turning toward God. Because what we'll learn throughout the scriptures is that true repentance always begets more repentance. Or as the reformer Martin Luther said, that all of the Christian life is summed up in repentance. That repentance begets more repentance. And so it's not something you do once. You don't turn away and believe once. You do it daily. However, Jesus tells us repentance is nothing without belief. You can identify all of your sins and all of your weaknesses and all of the areas that you want to personally grow, and you can even confess those things to your brothers or sisters in your neighborhood parish or your renewal group. But if you don't believe the gospel at the moment you repent, you will have nothing steadfast or hopeful or solid to turn toward. In other words, words, you'll be turning away from death, but you'll be turning into a void. So Christ doesn't call us only to repent and believe vainly in some self-realized platitude. He calls us to believe the gospel. So the Christian life of relationship with God, for those of you who are Christians or who will become Christians, the Christian life will, will lead you to encounter a lot of specific calls to action. But the call that is always present in all of those specific calls to action that undergirds every call you will experience, every call to action you will be given is the one from this text that you would repent and believe the gospel. Every day and in every circumstance, the Christian is to repent and to believe the gospel. Jesus prefaces belief in this gospel with repentance. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Well, it is the good news that Jesus Christ is king of everything. That's the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus Christ is king of everything. And this is good news because of who Jesus Christ is. It's good news because Jesus is the son of God. And it's good news because as the king of everything, he has come to take away our sins to give us new life through his resurrection and to be to us a kind and gracious and benevolent king who invites us into the workings of his eternal kingdom. This is surely good news. It's good news because God's son being king means that we can have relationship with God through this son and in his kingdom. As I said, Jesus prefaces belief in this gospel with repentance. And he does so to make things abundantly clear. Three things in specific. First, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel so that, that we would see that the good news of the gospel is for those who are messy and sinful and in need of radical transformation. God has good news and it's for the people who need it most. Second, that he has come to wash and sanctify and transform those people. The, the good news is not that God has come specifically to those who are messy and sinful and weak, but that he has come to those who are messy and sinful and weak so that he might make them holy and beloved and strong and empowered. And third, that his kingdom is only for those 
who are able to admit their need for repentance and to receive his gift of forgiveness and transformation. So so the good news is that God has come for the sinful and the weak and the messy, that he intends to change the sinful and weak and the messy, but the caveat is that his kingdom is only for those who are willing to admit that they are sinful and weak and messy. Because only then can you submit to the power and authority of a good and gracious king. Otherwise, you believe yourself to be your own king or queen in your own kingdom or queendom, and I tell you, it will be inferior to that of God's. So to sum it up, the gospel is good news for bad people of a great God and king named Jesus Christ. And to believe this gospel is to believe that Christ is your king. That he has come to take away your sin and to reconcile you to God. But, but that is just one portion of the gospel. It is also to believe that Christ is the king of all people and that he has come to reconcile all people to God. Meaning that Christ, the gospel is to believe that Christ is king over God's kingdom. And that his kingdom exists to provide shelter and prosperity and newness of life to the entire world. In the person of Christ, the kingdom of God has drawn near. And through his body, the body of Christ, which we learn throughout the New Testament, is the church, the kingdom of God continues to be at hand. Though Christ is ascended into the heavenly places, the kingdom of God is at hand wherever God's people have meaningful presence. So the gospel is for every individual person, and yet it is also for all the nations and kingdoms of the world to sit under. The good news is that God is making all things new through a people to whom he has united himself. And he has done so, he's united himself to this people by doing this, by allowing his spirit to descend upon his people in baptism, by adopting them as his sons, by proclaiming his pleasure and love for them, by sending his angels to minister to them in the midst of a wilderness of sin, suffering, temptation, and evil, and then to empower them to live obedient lives of proclamation that God's son is king and that in him is fullness of life. So, so I, did you see what, what I did there? I'm, I'm saying that the text that we read this morning is not only telling us the story of Jesus' ministry, it's telling you your story as well. If you're a Christian, you were baptized in water and given the gift of God's Spirit and called a son. He has called you a beloved son and he is well pleased with you. Hear that, church. God is pleased with you. He's pleased with you. But following your baptism, for those of you who are Christians, it will be easy for you to recall that your new spirit-empowered life wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. Amen? More likely, the spirit led you immediately into a wilderness of temptation and hunger and loneliness and painful growth and maturity and suffering. But now, you have God's spirit with you. You have his word with you. You have the ministry of the heavenly host of angels to keep you from your former sins, from the pitfalls of the desires of the flesh, from the threats of all the wild beasts that might surround you, and from the fear of all of that 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 comes with this. 
And so now you can walk victoriously through the wilderness, like David, who famously said in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why was it that David feared no evil? Because God was with him, because God's rod and staff comforted him. And hear this, church, God is with you too, and God will lead you too in the same ways he led Christ in the wilderness and David through the valley of the shadow of death. And what will he lead you into? Well, like he leads Jesus in this text, he will lead you into a life of bold proclamation with your words and your deeds and your choices and the priorities that you set upon your life to proclaim that the kingdom of God is here and that all would do well to turn from their former sins and hopes, and to believe instead the good news of God in Christ. But the story of this text isn't only the story of Jesus, nor is it only our individual testimony, but it's also the story of the church as a whole. Following the resurrection and ascension of Christ, what do we see? In the book of Acts, we see a picture of God's new church having the Holy Spirit descend upon them. And then they are sent immediately into a wilderness of opposition where both the Jewish and Roman authorities desire to silence, imprison, and kill them. And what do they do? They boldly and humbly proclaim that God's kingdom has come in Jesus and that it is a great refuge for all people. And then this story has continued for over 2,000 years and it is why you are sitting here this morning. Now, some of you in the room have yet to trust in Christ. You've yet to be baptized into his kingdom. And so I want to urge you to repent and to believe the gospel. Be transformed by the overwhelming power and love that God has toward you, even if you feel like you don't deserve his love, because the truth is, none of us deserve it. But Christ is a king like no other. He loves to take the weak, the messy, and the outcast, and to graft them into his family and his kingdom, and to empower them for lives of meaning and purpose. He loves to show his power and love and glory by turning men and women who were formerly weak and unsteady and sinful into beacons of light and beacons of hope in a world of darkness. But I will warn you, if you do turn toward Christ, If you do repent and believe and get baptized into his kingdom, your life will likely take on the pace of Mark's gospel. You will immediately face the hardship of being a stranger and an alien to the world around you. You will face temptation and suffering and fear, and you will immediately be called to do the work of the kingdom which is proclaiming the goodness of the king through a life of radical hospitality and love toward your neighbors and toward your enemies. And this will be jarring at first, but God has a gift for you. He has a gift for you is that that you won't be alone. God's kingdom is not one of isolation. Instead, you will be part of his kingdom and family called the church. 
You will be given the presence of God's own spirit to take up residence in your very body to guide you and encourage you and comfort you and sustain you. And God will minister to you in your hours of need and confusion and hunger. Church, in God's kingdom, sometimes things move quickly. But they are always moving in the same direction. And that direction is that of God moving toward his people in love. That is the direction of God's kingdom. And it has drawn near. The kingdom of God has drawn near. It is at hand. God's kingdom has no real business drawing near. 